Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. Julia, how you been? How's everything going? Oh, just, uh, the, it's just, I, I don't know what to say anymore. Uh, I'm really dreading the winter. It's starting to get like, it's starting to get pretty cold here in New York and it's just making me feel kind of sad. But, um, other than that, yeah, just mostly been watching movies and and TV and trying to still read because I found reading to be very difficult still at this point of the pandemic. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty challenging. I'm still working my way through two books. Um one is Thomas Frank's new book, which is really good so far. The people know. It's a book about the history of populism and the other book is a book called Conflict is Not Abuse by Sarah oh, Schulman, yeah. who is a radical queer activist. And this was like, she wrote this book pre the entire cancel culture debate, but mm-hmm. it definitely, you know, it it has some it has some relevance to a lot of the things that people are talking about right now. And I, this book is, it's good so far. I haven't finished it, but, you know, I, I think when I picked it up, I was a little bit worried that it was going to be like a, oh, wow, look at all these snowflakes kind of book books. But uh, it's it's actually a lot about how people like Trump or, uh, you know, the Republican Party or Israel, um, not just people, but, you know, countries and institutions are kind of painting themselves as, victims you know um, and sort of like framing the debate around like the way that they're being wronged by people that actually have way less power and so it's been an interesting read so far uh yeah i've I've heard really good things about it and yeah i will report back when i finish um and uh yeah so i know one thing we really wanted to discuss is a matter of urgent importance on today's show is uh the vow i think hbo's HBO's The Vow, which we have discussed before. Yeah, we're on episode eight or seven. (laughs) Episode eight. Um, So we got one more. Yeah, I think we have one more. And I just I want to I want to get his ass. uh, Keith Raniere. I I have to say last night's episode and I'm sorry for those of you who don't watch, but that's really on you and you should be watching um, is I found last night's episode, which was mostly about the gender dynamics of uh, Nexium, I found it really, I think it was the most difficult for me to watch. I had to keep pausing it and restarting it. Like, I don't, and I kind of didn't know why, but I did find it, I found it really, uh, and there's been a lot of upsetting shit that has happened on the show. uh, And I found that one the most difficult. Uh, because it's honestly like there are two within Nexium, which for those of you who don't know, it's a cult slash MLM. Uh, <laughs> as you know, as many things are, as many as MLMs many are. are, and as many cults are. There's yeah, a, there's a um, slash. Yeah, you know, Scientology is a is a slash. Um, but there are these like there were these two groups within Nexium, two like working groups one called Jeunesse and one called SOP and Jeunesse was for women and SOP is stands for society of protectors and it's about it's for men and it's like exploring what it means to be like what femininity and masculinity masculinity mean respectively and as someone who like as i've talked about before uh, has a lot of life experience in evangelical Christianity. I got just major women's and men's Bible study vibes from both of those groups. Yeah. You know what I also got? I got major anti-woke podcast vibes off Keith, and I also got major anti-woke podcast vibes off Ken Bone recently. Remember when he came back for, oh, like, a day? Yeah. Yeah, which is, like, you know... <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, people if, that honestly, are like, if Keith had just wanted to be like a podcaster, he would have had his Patreon numbers would be off the charts, in my opinion. Yeah. No, it's it's like <laughs> there's every, you know, every month or two, there's a new dude that is like, you know, I'm going to say the thing that nobody's ready to hear, which is that women fucking suck and it's yeah. okay to be racist. And I, I don't know. Actually, the vow doesn't really go into uh, Keith's racial politics. race. Yeah. Yes. But, uh, you know... I mean, like, a lot of the stuff that he was saying, it's, like, you could easily see that be sort of easily interchangeable with, like, Jordan Peterson, who we talk about later in this episode, actually, or, you know, some of these, like, uh, these fucking anti-woke dudes that have gotten some real success, you know? I mean, also, and there's a lot of, there is a lot of, like, evangelical Christian purity culture. It's in it, too. It's just, like... And it's it's not to say that these ideas originate in evangelical Christian purity culture. These ideas are kind of like as old as time. They just keep getting like repackaged and sold to a new audience. And that's what was so upsetting to me, I think. Um, like yeah. the idea that women are inherently um, untrustworthy because they're like cunning and conniving and they control men through sex. And, you know, basically like... I, I mean, I think the thing about the vow that is so compelling is that the people who were in it, who were like really sold on these ideas are like otherwise pretty smart people. And, you know, you heard one of them being like, yeah, I had just I, I she had to sleep on the floor because she sp- publicly spoke out against her husband. And it's just like I it's really ups- it's just really upsetting. I don't know. I I wasn't expecting to be as affected by that episode as I was. I've really been like throughout the series I've been very gripped by it, but I was like I was upset last night by I think it it's because it gave me like evangelical flashbacks of like yeah, especially because he was talking about women and the clothes that they wear. And, like, if your clothes are too tight, then you're demanding a certain kind of attention and men are never going to respect you. And it's like, this is literally just, did none of these people grow up Christian? I would have walked out, I would that would have been my, I would have been like, oh, no, 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 this is, this is where I leave. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I was thinking about evangelical Christianity in the context of that show. And I was also an evangelical Christian when I was a teen and I went to, like, Bible camp and I remember like all the purity discussions uh that were quite cult-like and I specifically remember this one woman who was like 60 years old like literally 60. It's always a 60 year old woman. Yeah and she had never gotten married ever and she gave us this big speech about how it was really important to wait for marriage and like how she was still a virgin And I was like, this is literally the worst selling point for this idea that you could, like, possibly ever have. Like, if you were like, you know, okay, I'm 22 and I waited till marriage, but now I'm getting the shit fucked out of me and my husband has a perfect dick. You know, that would be like, okay, maybe I'll wait for marriage if that's what happens to you. But, like, 60? 60 and never getting fucked? No. No. No way. Uh, so it's kind of a tangent there, but yes, no, I definitely got the evans vibes off of it, you know? I do want to make sure that we talk for this episode a moment about something that's been, I think, on both of our minds, uh, abortion rights, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, because, um, you know, this is uh, Amy Coney Barrett, it, her confirmation to the Supreme Court looks all but done. Uh, the Democrats are doing almost nothing to even try to stop this. So, you know, this weird people of praise lady, she's going to be probably the person that if, if she doesn't like, if she's not the deciding vote and like striking down Roe, that doesn't really matter because there's so many other ways that they have the potential to and have already limited abortion rights. And there was this amazing piece by Jenny Brown in Jewish Currents this week. Um, And Jenny Brown is the author of Without Apology. And that's an amazing book that is 
a really awesome leftist feminist perspective on the struggle for abortion rights. Uh, and this piece is just so good. We'll link it in the show notes. But uh, it's, so, it's about... It's, yeah, it's so good. I, yeah. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, that you sent it to me. Yeah, it's it's awesome. And it's, you know, it's about what the struggle for abortion rights looks like in this moment and where the centrist framing of this particular battle has gone wrong. And so, you know, the Supreme Court, it's all but guaranteed that they are uh, going to either strike down Roe versus Wade or uh, severely kneecap it to the point where, like, it's essentially meaningless. And we have, like, 21 states that are going to uh, have serious, serious abortion restrictions in place, like the moment that that happens. And 10 states where abortion will be illegal altogether. This is something that we talked about, I think, on like our second episode with mm-hmm. Sarah Hartshorn. Um, mm-hmm. All these different, you know, trigger laws and trap laws and stuff. So that, that's a pretty good explanation of a lot of the stuff that's going on. But this piece, this piece ruled because one of the things that it goes over is how Roe versus Wade has framed the struggle for abortion rights uh, in terms of the right to privacy instead Mm -hmm. of the right to abortion and how it's kind of emphasized the medical element that abortion is a private decision between patient and doctor, kind of leaving aside the misogyny that is in the medical profession, um, that is ingrained in the medical profession, I mean, and like, you know, that it's kind of siloed abortion off from radical feminist demands uh, such as rearranging the economy to value care work, wealth redistribution, and complete bodily autonomy for women. And this piece is really cool because it's talking about sort of reframing the debate in this moment yet again uh, as we have to attempt to pass uh, legislation that protects abortion in the United States, legislation that may well be struck down by the Supreme Court yet again. But, you know, I think the hope at this point is to pass a bill uh, federally mandating the right to an abortion, as well as Medicare for all that will guarantee that abortion be free. So much abortion has been limited by the Hyde Amendment that prevents poor women from having abortions. Yeah, yeah. there's there's a lot of uh, overlap to what we we talk about later in the episode. But like so many things, uh, the discourse on abortion at the national level has just kind of basically been according to Republicans' rules. And we've yes. let Republicans dictate the terms of the negotiations. And it's like a hostage situation at this point. Um, you know, I, I think the idea that Roe is on pretty shaky ground constitutionally as a privacy issue is not it's not a new idea. And it's an idea that exists on the left and the right. Uh, that's one of the reasons why um, Republicans have been salivating one of the many reasons why they've been salivating to uh, take a swing at Roe for so long uh, is because they know that it is kind of, uh, it's a little bit shakier uh, than than it should be. Um, and yeah. I, com- I completely agree with her that we need to like reframe the way that we're fighting this fight because we're just playing we've been playing defense for so long and we're just losing more and more ground. Yeah. I think like more broadly, you know, so whether or not Democrats decide to pack the court and I hope that they do, but you know, it it looks like that's potentially not going to happen because I know Joe Biden has um, expressed that, you know, he's not in favor of it. And, you know, even if they do, pack the court, which again, I hope they do, you know, like you're going to get Republicans packing the court in retribution, you know, um, four, eight years later, whenever they win again, um, when the presidency again, that is, you know, and so a lot of the battles uh, for leftists and even progressive liberals over the next few years are going to be about actually, I think, shifting public opinion and organizing outside of electoral politics and 
you know, sort of uh, turning the tide on certain issues like Medicare for all, uh, like abortion rights. Um, and I think Jenny Brown's is a really great case of making uh, making the frame uh, of setting the kind of like frame for this debate uh, as, you know, demanding abortion rights without apology, which is literally the title of her book. Uh, she talks in this piece about Planned Parenthood advertisements uh, devoted to uh, restrictions uh, against abortion in the case of rape or uh, cancer treatments having to stop during pregnancy or uh, fetuses that are non-viable as in they're going to die. You know, I, I can imagine that, you know, in the next few months as this campaign ensues, we're going to see a lot of emphasis on women who have miscarriages and could potentially in a post-Roe world be going to jail for having a miscarriage. And we've seen that happening already. And obviously those things are important to highlight, but, you know, there's also potential to, I think, organize people around just that this is a human right. And uh, we don't have to necessarily emphasize the most tragic cases that abortion are that abortion is necessary. 30% of women get abortions and even some people who don't identify as women. And it, it doesn't have to be necessarily all this hedging. The uh, public pressure and public sentiment turning, I think, is a really important thing, uh, important cases she makes in this piece, that actually public sentiment moving is what led to the ruling on Roe in the first place. And that is, uh, you know, I think to to protect and expand abortion rights, um, it, it is going to be a matter of turning public sentiment, you know, maybe politically galvanizing people that have not been politically galvanized in the past. Um, well, yeah, and I think, well, I mean, the polls have shown for decades that the majority of Americans support abortion. Yes. Um, safe and legal abortion. And so, yes, it's it is that it's just it, it's it's going to be, I think, a matter of of getting those people, as you said, politically mo- mobilized, especially in a a political system that is designed not to represent them, because the places where. You know, you and I are are lucky enough that we will probably continue living in in states where it will continue to be legal. But there are states, as we yeah. you and I have talked about on this show before, where it is all but illegal. Um, you know, it's I I don't consider abortion to be legal in Louisiana or yeah. Mississippi. Yeah, or um, even in the states one, where it's legal, yeah. it's like, you know, the Hyde Amendment is is so, so, uh, so, so important to consider that, you know, that basically the federal funding can't pay for abortion. So Medicare and Medicaid cannot pay for abortion. This is something that Joe Biden has supported for a long time. And he, I think, changed his position on this in like June. But, uh, you know, it's... It's, uh, abortion is not going to be, um, a right in this country until it's free and accessible on demand for everybody. And I think the kind of larger point that we wanted to make in this segment is, you know, that this isn't all dependent on the Supreme Court. It's really easy to despair in the face of Amy Coney Barrett, but actually, you know, we can shift this movement through public opinion, uh, it is possible to enshrine the right to have an abortion in law uh, via Congress. Um, and, you know, Congress loves to pretend that they have no power, which we talk about later in this episode, but they actually really do. Um, and the Supreme Court has, as Jenny Brown mentions in this place, uh, defended the expansion of slavery. They've blocked efforts to end the Great Depression. And I think over the next few years, it's really going to be about sort of like changing the way that like liberals in particular see the court as something that's, you know, extremely important and necessary into like, yeah, we got the Supreme Court, but that's not really a big deal. Who actually has the power is Congress and, um, you know, and Congress, we are going to fill with 
amazing leftist candidates and that we're going to organize outside of Congress as well uh, with direct actions and with uh, workers' movements and tenants' movements. And, you know, it's probably all still going to be bad, but we have a, a pretty good fighting chance to do some things we want to do here. Yeah. Amen. Um, so for this episode... We're very lucky to have Luke Savage, who's a staff writer for Jacobin, and he absolutely rules. And we talked to him about his recent piece for The Atlantic about why liberals pretend that they have no power. Uh, We talk shit about Nancy. We talk shit about Gavin. We talk shit about Cuomo. Uh, It's a great, great time. And then on our Patreon episode this week, uh, we talk with Luke a little more about the West Wing and how that's influencing our political moment. Well, thank you so much and uh, we will see you next week. Just listen to Reply Guys. Alright, hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I am so excited this week. We are joined by Luke Savage, a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. Tell us a little bit about your article for The Atlantic, uh, Why Liberals Pretend They Have No Power. And this was such a great piece and I was really excited to see it in the Atlantic because The Atlantic is like, you know, it's like a very uh, lib publication, you know? So uh, what what was it like for you to get your uh, leftist work in such a kind of like mainstream liberal publication? It was it was a a really interesting exercise to write this piece because, uh, you know, I definitely had in the back of my mind that this is a different kind of audience than the one I'm used to addressing. And I think that's kind of reflected in the piece. If I wrote this piece for Jacobin or Current Affairs or some of the other publications, like the leftier ones that I tend to write for, um, it would definitely be a a different kind of piece because I would be addressing a different audience. So, uh, you know, I guess there are some uh, things that might be obvious to people on the left that uh, don't appear in the piece uh, that are arguments I I guess I I could have made. you know, like the fact that Democrat, you know, this whole framing of Democrats feigning powerlessness. um, While I think that's true, you know, it's also important to say that Democrats are also complicit in a lot of things. They're not just powerless. Um, You know, uh, Democrats don't just oppose Medicare for all, for example, because, uh, you know, because they're too meek or or whatever. It's not just a a question of temperament and style. It's also because, uh, you know, they're intimately tied up with private insurance companies and and uh, corporate donors and and things like that. Um, But, uh, you know, the the piece was addressed to a different audience than the one I'm used to addressing. And, um, you know, I guess, you know, it can be easy to forget this on the left, but, you know, there are a lot of people well-meaning, you know, rank and file liberals in the United States who really have internalized certain things about the Democratic Party, right? That, you know, that uh, Democratic politicians like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are fundamentally well-meaning, that the Democratic Party is doing everything it can to oppose Donald Trump, um, that uh, where Democrats fail, I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, they're not really failing. It's like the system or the people kind of failing them, uh, you know, uh, uh, and that uh, when Democrats offer things that are, uh, I don't know, should we say less than inspiring, when uh, they offer a public option, which they're not even going to do instead of Medicare for all, that's because that's all the system will allow, right? That's just because they're doing uh, you know, the maximum of what the system will uh, allow them to uh, to do, um, you know, what will pass through Congress, et cetera. So this piece is really addressed to people that I think have kind of internalized uh, those sorts of things. And it was, uh, you know, certainly an interesting exercise to write it uh, different from what I usually do. Yeah, I, I, I thought that the the example, one of the examples that you used uh, was really interesting. Uh, Democratic governors are, are kind of the ultimate symbol of like, oh, no, I'm so powerless, even though governors have so much latitude to change legislation at the state level. Um, the examples you used were Andrew Cuomo and Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom, obviously, the fires have been like just ravaged California all summer, as they have been every summer uh, in recent years. And Gavin Newsom, you know, publicly states like, now is not the time to be a climate change denier. Underneath that, he has, as you noted, uh, signed through 48 fracking permits since April 
alone. So it's not. Yeah, I think I think the lie that has been internalized by a lot of people is like this idea of, oh, their hands are tied. They can't do anything when, you know, as you mentioned in the piece, we do have to acknowledge the structural limitations of things. Certainly there are certain structural limitations of our government. And there are certainly ways in which they are like Democrats at the federal level are kind of bound. But at a moment like this, I think to not be using the full weight of your leverage, whatever that is, makes, as you said, it makes you, it does make you complicit to use an overused phrase. uh, And it kind of like actively harms people. And also that that doubly doesn't give people a feeling of confidence voting for that party. Because I think a lot more people would be more sympathetic to the Democratic Party if they felt like they were actually going to bat for the American people. If they felt like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were pulling all the levers that they could and using every ounce of leverage that they had to try to like gum up the works to stop <laughs> all of this terrible shit from happening. What's going on with the courts right now, I think, is a really good case in point, because as long as I've been following American politics, the courts are the one reason that's kind of the ultimate fallback. It's what Democrats say. uh, You have to vote blue no matter what because of the courts. Uh, Donald Trump is effectively saying uh, that he is uh, stacking the courts and, you know, in the lead up to the election. Uh, you know, because uh, the court is, I mean, he's as good as suggested the court's going to decide the election uh, a la, you know, Bush v. Gore. Um, so the president is pretty much openly saying that uh, that he's he's ignoring the entire uh, democratic order, every law and convention of the democratic order. And uh, what does the Democratic Party do? I mean, Nancy Pelosi, uh, I quote her at the beginning of the piece. She says uh, she compares uh, Donald Trump to like, she says, you're not in North Korea, you're not in Turkey. Um, and then the same reporter, I think, from the Wall Street Journal asked her a few moments moments later in the same press conference, um, so are you going to shut down the government? Like, what are you going to do about this? And she said, oh, we can't shut down the government because then, you know, uh, civil servants won't get paid or whatever, um, which, you know, I looked into the last government shutdown and actually uh, workers did get paid like retroactively. So it's like a transparently cop out defense. But also there's just such an obvious uh disconnect between those two statements. So on the one hand, uh, the president is doing something worthy of comparisons to North Korea, but on the other, um, Democrats are basically just going to behave normally um, and not really do anything outside of sort of the regular congressional etiquette. And I feel like that applies to so much in the Trump era. Um, You know, uh, there is there's this there's so much rhetoric that suggests and not just from Democratic politicians, you know, from like people on our social media feeds who have otherwise pretty, uh, pretty boring, you know, milk toast politics and like probably voted for Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg in the primaries or whatever. Um, you know, they'll say like Donald Trump is a dictator on the one hand, but then when it comes to their prescriptions or what they think Democrats should be doing, it's never anything outside the realm of what, you know, centrist Democrats would would do already. Um, and I don't know, I think that's a pretty obvious, uh, you know, that that raises some pretty big questions about uh, what do Democrats really mean when they call Donald Trump a dictator, or when they say he's enabling white supremacists, or, or whatever, are they actually sincere about that? Do they really, uh, do they really think uh, the things that they 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 themselves are saying are true? Um, and if they do, then why aren't they acting differently? I think that there, I, I think that to just baseline become a politician, you have to already have so much cognitive dissonance built into your brain. That's what it seems like if if our if our government is any uh, is any indication. But I think all of your points are really are really well taken. One of the things that you mentioned in the piece is that so much of the mainstream Republican platform has been adopted by the Democratic platform and by certainly by centrist uh, Democrats and a lot of, you know, your average rank and file Democrats as well, that, again, the thing that we keep coming back to is like etiquette and um, like the idea of normalcy is about like 
cordiality and you know Mitt Romney released this fucking screed today that was just like everyone's being too rude and I hate it and the idea that we were a lot of us were raised with um, because certainly if you grew up in the like the Clinton years and after is that like bipartisanship is inherently good there's inherent morality in bipartisanship but really, it's just kind of kowtowing to Republicans at every turn. Because, I mean, in as you kind of noted in your piece in the Clinton administration, it wasn't bipartisanship. It was just like Newt Gingrich had carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. Like, they were literally working on privatizing Social Security before the Lewinsky scandal broke. So I think that... <laughs> The one I, I know that everyone is craving some sort of like normalcy, obviously, because we've had such an an upheaval of our of our democratic norms. Um, but that's the thing that I hope we never go back to is that like I hope that people become, you know, get as angry as they should be about about these things. It actually makes me upset when, and I and I imagine it makes a lot of uh, prospective voters upset when they see the kind of like throwing throwing up of the hands and abdication of of control by you know people like Schumer and Pelosi Pelosi's number 3 in the chain of command like you kind of don't get much more powerful than her uh even like obviously the senate uh, you know the senate and the presidency are in republican hands and there's nothing you can do there but she still has a lot that she can do and uh as we all as New Yorkers all know, uh, Andrew Cuomo has a lot he can do. And he, I mean, he's a lost cause, in my opinion. He's hes just like, he's a Republican to me. But it is really frustrating. And I think another thing that you had mentioned is, like, because of that, uh, the Democratic Party writ large had be- has become sort of allergic to the idea of running on big platform, kind of issue-based campaigns and that ultimate that culminated in in 2016 in a huge way because no one could tell you anything any policy Hillary was running on. Yeah, they always say go look it up on the website. It's all <laughs> on her website. Her whole platform it's actually the most progressive platform in all of history and you would know that if you just looked at the website which is what most people who don't vote are going to do. Everybody always says that, you know, people said that in 2016, uh, I've gotten the same, uh, the same thing anytime, like I've done a lot of writing about the Biden campaign, you know, pointing out that uh, there's some pretty obvious disconnects that kind of mirror the same ones we've just been talking about between the things that Joe Biden is officially campaigning on and the things that he's actually campaigning on. Um, it's all well and good to say such and such a thing is on a website, but I think if uh, you know, a presidential candidate is not actually talking about any of that stuff. Um, we can pretty safely assume they're they're not really that keen on doing any of it. Like Hillary Clinton had all that stuff on her website in 2016 that uh, I guess came out of these platform committees that had Bernie Sanders delegates on them and stuff like that. Um, but uh, there was one study that found she actually had the most policy free. Uh, presidential campaign in modern history. Her ads contained almost no references to policy. They were all like uh, ads showing uh, children watching Donald Trump on the TV and like, you know, think of the children and and that kind of stuff. Like there was no policy substance to any of it. Um, And with Biden, I think it's very similar. Um, You know, uh, I've criticized Biden and people have said, oh, but he's campaigning on the public option. And my response to that is always, is he? I mean, when have you ever heard Biden bring up the public option? Did he bring it up a single time in the debate? I'd have to go back, but I really, I really don't think, uh, I really don't think he did. I don't think Biden is running a single ad touting the public option uh, or any of the other big marquee things that are supposedly on his platform. So I don't know. There's so many things Democrats do uh, to to kind of uh, manage and triangulate the fact that. Uh, they are in large part a party of uh, capital, or at least one that is capital adjacent and capital sympathetic. Um, 
triangulate uh, that reality with the fact that they have a lot of people. There are a lot of people who vote for the Democratic Party uh, who do care about social justice, who care about racial justice, economic justice, uh, you know, who are afraid of, you know, who are concerned about climate change, that kind of thing. Um, And I don't know, I think in the last four years, we've really seen this contradiction I don't know, grow more and more extreme than it's ever been uh, because you have Democratic politicians talking about uh, how the president is a fascist dictator um, and, you know, uh, making, you know, gestures nominally in support of Black Lives Matter and things like that, um, while not really doing anything that, uh, you know, in concrete terms or in substantive terms that sets them apart from the things that they were uh, they were doing before, uh, you know, uh, liberalism. And I, I say a version of this in the piece, you know, liberalism has never been so kind of uh, suffuse with talk about social justice and um uh, you know, appeals to, uh, you know, the experiences of the most marginalized and, and things like that. Um, and uh, it's 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 never been so kind of intense about those things um, uh, and yet so kind of completely uninterested in them in in kind of concrete terms. Um, this is the really big gulf right now, and it's going to be very interesting to see if Biden wins, uh, how that gulf is navigated, you know, in the Obama era. Uh, I think a lot of people did just kind of switch off after 2008. And, uh, you know, Obama looked good on TV. You know, he was a good speaker. Uh, He was a compelling personality, very popular politician that people liked. I'm not convinced that's going to be the case with uh, with Joe Biden. So um, so maybe that's something to be optimistic about. My my question for for you about that as a follow up um, would be obviously the gap has widened, but also I think a lot of kind of issues that are central to the left have become more popular in America, like obviously Medicare for all being the number one example. So I think as the base moves left and also as we've had more and more kind of progressive and left candidates be elected to, you know, all all levels of government, I'm trying to look for any way to be optimistic. And I um, and I, I just, I think a lot of people did turn their brains off during the Obama years. And I also, we lost so many congressional seats there. And if, if it is going to be President Joe Biden, that the, the Congress that he would be overseeing would be, would look a lot different than uh, the one that Barack Obama did. I hope so. I mean, I'm definitely encouraged by, uh, by some of these elections, particularly, uh, you know, in, in, you know, solidly blue states, uh, New York being the most obvious example, you know, primarying these dinosaurs like uh, Elliot Engel, Joe Crowley, replacing them uh, ideally with socialists, but if not with, you know, uh, left progressive uh, liberals. Uh, yeah, there's certainly a lot to be uh, optimistic about there. Um, I, I don't want to douse that optimism, but I think that if Biden wins, Uh, You know, we are going to have to confront the reality that a lot of people who voted for the Democratic Party are going to be these affluent white suburbanites uh, who, uh, you know, have probably spent a lot of time in the past voting Republican. Uh, I think that's who Biden's really building his electoral coalition on. So uh, we're talking about the gulf, the contradictions between what the Democratic Party officially is on paper and what it actually is. And I think uh, that contradiction is is only going to grow, given that, as you said, the base of the Democratic Party is really moving left. Like, look at support for Medicare for all. It's, uh, you know, somewhere in the vicinity of 90 percent. Um, and yet, you know, the Democratic nominee doesn't support it because uh, he's trying to win by winning over, you know, uh, rich white suburbanites who, you know, just want to go back to brunch. Yeah, um, not only, but not so only as that contradiction, not only ninety percent in uh, in the Democratic Party, it's in the majority of Americans. That's I think it's like yeah. at least fifty five percent now. So absolutely, yeah. So I think that contradiction will only grow and. Uh, I guess the real question is now that we've had two, you know, uh, I mean, failed Bernie Sanders campaigns, but certainly campaigns that were much more successful than anyone anticipated. What does the next version of that look like? And, uh, you know, will it succeed when Democrats don't have uh, the bogeyman of Donald Trump to encourage people to vote for Joe Biden because they're uh, because they're too scared to vote for the socialist? I don't know, but uh, uh, I'm reasonably optimistic about the future, uh, all things considered. Yeah, I mean, I definitely I I hear people's fears that everyone is going to go back to brunch. Um, And 
I don't really share them because in addition to the fact that there's been two Bernie Sanders campaigns and a lot of people have become politically engaged and radicalized uh, since the Obama era, we're also in the middle of a pandemic. And this is a situation where everyone really notices that their life is being negatively impacted by politics. Like there's nobody like even if you're a middle class person or, you know, even if you're like uh, semi-wealthy or whatever, like you still definitely notice that you can't really see your friends that much or that you have to wear a mask all the time or that, you know, your favorite theater is shut down, you know, and for a lot of people, it's way worse than that. They're going to work every day, risking their lives. And I just, I don't know. I don't actually anticipate that people will check out in the same way that they did under Barack Obama. I agree. Because... Yeah, we just, we're all kind of noticing, like, hey, man, shit's pretty fucked up. And if anything, my expectation is that Biden will make that more clear because I think a lot of people right now are able to uh, sort of put it all on Trump and say, like, you know, okay, the reason that everything is, like, fucked up right now is because we have this, like, evil dictator guy. And I I think it's going to be actually very radicalizing for a lot of people to realize that when Joe Biden takes office, if he does, assuming that's what happens, you know, that like, wow, these things aren't magically fixed. The banks are getting bailed out. We still don't have universal health care for people in the middle of a pandemic. Um, there's still all these evictions happening. And, you know, on the whole, things are maybe not that much better. They're a little bit better. There's a national testing strategy of some kind, perhaps, but like, the material difference to people's lives is not in any way mind blowing. And I think that's going to be a moment, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in 2016, there were some people who, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe these weren't real people. Maybe this is just a caricature that people made up, but I mean, I think you definitely heard, uh, a version of the idea that uh, a Trump presidency was going to be, you know, radicalizing to people and it was going to be constructive for the left because it would make people see how bad mm-hmm. uh, things were. I think we've learned in the past four years that it was ex- it was exactly the opposite <laughs> of that. A Trump presidency created a whole new like class of traumatized white suburbanites who have their brains pickled by MSNBC, which they watch for like 27 hours a day. Um, and it actually was very counterproductive, even as some people uh, were radicalized radicalizing, uh, you know, and we're, uh, you know, getting behind Bernie, um, there was this whole other uh, contingent uh, that Trump was helping, mo- uh, helping the Democrats mobilize. And that was very counterproductive for our purposes. Um, and to go back to 2016, I mean, I think that Hillary winning actually would have been really good for the left, not because Hillary was our fan, um, but because uh, it would have uh, done exactly what you were just saying, Kate, it would have helped people uh, realize that the Democrats uh, you know, are if you're if you're any kind of progressive, I mean, forget a socialist, even just a kind of uh, you could be a milquetoast progressive and, uh, you know, a Hillary Clinton White House is not going to be your friend, yeah. you know, um, and I think that's going to be abundantly clear to people. Uh, however, the, you know, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the people around them kind of try to smooth those things over, um, you know, with kind of token appeals to uh, progressives or whatever they do. Um, I really don't think it's it's going to work. I think when they get in there, um, I mean, Biden's already been sending uh, certain signals that, you know, he's or his advisors have that he's not going to implement, um, you know, the stuff on his website that all that famous stuff that's on his website. Um, there's going to be a huge uh, deficit uh, because of uh, the Trump tax cuts and because of all the COVID spending. Uh, and I really don't trust that Joe Biden is going to do uh, with that anything much different than the stuff he spent the past you know, half century doing, which is advocating uh, austerity and, uh, and punching the left. So uh, hopefully that will be a clarifying uh, moment for people. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's the moment we could have had in 2016 uh, if Hillary had uh, if Hillary had won. I have like, I have one final follow up question Go for on it. this. So what was really, I think, illuminating for me, the, the first two books that really made it super clear to me that it's not that the Democrats are cock blocked. It's that they don't want to actually implement these progressive they policies. They don't um, <laughs> yeah, they don't want to fuck. Uh, they're not in the mood. Uh, you could even say that they're fucking someone else and that that's someone oh. else's Wall Street. Um, just to, to play the joke to its most corny end. But um, 
You, I, definitely Listen Liberal by Thomas Frank and definitely also We've Got People by Ryan Grimm and specifically the section in We've Got People talking about Obama's first two years when he had the House and the Senate and really could have pushed through anything he wanted to, you know, and just kind of like thinking about the extent to which Democrats have been able to blame Republicans even for not acting when they do have the power to act. And I was wondering if you've thought about anything that could possibly sort of pierce that delusion that everything that happens is because Republicans are in the way and actually Democrats have no responsibility for this. How can we put the blame where it belongs? Well, I think that uh, period that you just uh, brought up uh, that, you know, Ryan Grimm talks about in his book is probably the best antidote to that uh, to that argument. Um, everybody always uh, talks as if the Obama presidency was thwarted by, you know, Republican intransigence and Mitch McConnell and all the rest of it. Uh, but there was the, you know, this two year period where the Democrats, uh, you know, had a majority in the Senate after, uh, I guess it was when Arlen Specter switched parties and when, uh, Al Franken was elected. They had 60 votes in the Senate. So they had a filibuster proof majority. Um, and what did they do? There were all kinds of things that they ran on, which would have been popular. Uh, you know, they were going to make it easier for people to unionize. And they decided that a Democratic administration taking power uh, during the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression with 60 votes in the Senate was not a time to pass anything like that. Uh, it was not a time to pass a public option. Um, you know, there was some resistance from blue dog Democrats, which people always bring up. But Obama didn't uh, do what, uh, you know, say a president Bernie Sanders would, which is uh, use those great communication skills of his to get out on the stump and shame those people into supporting uh, the public option or uh, or Medicare for all if they'd have wanted to push for it. That period, I think, is the best uh, is the best antidote um, to to the idea that Democrats, uh, you know, only don't pass progressive legislation because the system prevents them. Uh, they they had everything teed up uh, to implement, you know, an ambitious program, and they didn't do it uh, because uh, they don't want to. All that stuff about bipartisanship, um, that's not a means to an end, as those people see it. I mean, it is, you know, it is an end in itself. Uh, you know, the Obama administration famously spent a lot of time uh, trying to get Republican buy-in on things like the Affordable Care Act because they thought it was important that both party stamps were on uh, were on uh, legislation. And uh, when you look at which party has been more effective uh, for the past 30 years, it's the Republican Party yeah. in terms of getting their agenda passed. And it's precisely because they don't do these things. You know, they don't seek uh, compromise and uh, try to, you know, try to uh, pass bipartisan legislation. Um, and they use every tool at their disposal uh, and sometimes tools that are outside of, you know, certainly outside of the norm and which maybe Democrats shouldn't use. But they're absolutely relentless. Um, in pursuing their agenda. And if the Democrats had been as relentless when they uh, controlled all three uh, branches of government in uh, 2008, things would be very different today. Amen. Rahm Emanuel sucks. <laughs> yeah, Rahm Emanuel Fuck sucks. Rahm. That was that was kind of like the theme of that whole book. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, I love there it. There could be so I, many I, books written about the about the degree to which Rahm Emanuel sucks. Um, but yeah, no, I completely... I completely agree. And Kate and I did an episode um, about a deep dive into Nancy Pelosi last year. And um, that is pretty much. I mean, the fact that Nancy Pelosi came out of the first two years of the Obama administration looking like a liberal champion, like a, a progressive champion kind of tells you everything you need to know. Um, like she had to be, are you telling me that the queen of shade <laughs> is not someone that we should stand? You know, I, I do light my Nancy Pelosi girl boss candle every night and pray to it. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think she, I think she's got some issues. I think, I think her time has passed. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the, the complacency of this like centrist neoliberal I don't even want to call it an agenda because that feels too organized. It's just like a worldview that seeps into, it's just, it's all, it's, 
it kind of inherently has no policy agenda. It's like, yeah, I mean, they're, well, it's servants of capital, yeah. right? Like it's, you know, it's just like, it's, 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 it's a Shutterstock photo of a white person and a black person holding hands. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And then they both work for an investment bank. Hey, this is Kate. If you enjoyed this interview with Luke Savage, please keep listening on our Patreon. We would love for you to become a subscriber for $5 a month that you can access part two of this interview with Luke Savage. And you can also access our entire back catalog of interviews, including a really great series we just did on QAnon with Will Summer, Talia Levine, and Travis View. So please check that out and listen to part two of this interview where we talk to Luke about the West Wing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. Your this land, land is my land.